Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. My guest today is Charlie Nelson. Charlie is CEO and founder of Washington Property Company. It's a 14-year-old enterprise that Charlie founded that is approximately three and a half million square feet in its portfolio office and retail and apartment properties, as well as another 1.1 million square feet of primarily residential mixed-use projects under construction currently. So he's very active as a developer and operator of real estate. Prior to Washington Property Company, Charlie founded another company called Atlantic Realty Company in Northern Virginia with his partner at that time, David Ross, coming out of the recession of the 1990, early 1990s. He grew that enterprise significantly with several acquisitions and development opportunities through the 1990s, emerging from the the issues at that time. Charlie talks a lot about uh, his family background, goes into some of his business philosophy, his philanthropic efforts, and his immense ability to be lucky at the right time in the right situations. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Charlie Nelson. Welcome, Charlie. How are you today? Doing great, John. That's great. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, and thanks for inviting me. So, Charlie, I thought we'd start out a little bit about uh, your role at Washington Property Company, what you're doing, and how you see yourself as uh, as CEO of the company, and how that how that perspective uh, affects your day to day life now. And then we'll shift back and talk a little bit about your family back. So, my role at uh, Washington Property Company is is founder, president, CEO. We are a small, uh, about thirty five person organization that is entrepreneurially driven. And kind of in that uh, framework, I uh, perform roles of uh, chief cook and bottle washer. I uh, work through and manage the organization. I'm involved in raising our capital, raising our debt, putting together our ventures, and also finding new opportunities for the company, whether it's a development opportunity or value-added acquisition opportunity. I'm the head cheerleader, Great. kind of all the above. Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your family background, and we'll go back a little bit to your childhood and where you grew up, and a little bit about that, and and what influences your your parents and uh, family members had on you as you were growing up. I guess the most important aspect of my childhood is that I'm an army brat, and being a child of a career military, uh, we don't really have a home state or that. I moved around quite a bit. A lot of exciting places like Fort Bragg, North Carolina and Fort Leavenworth, Kansas and Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So nothing uh, very exotic. My father was career military in West Point. My grandfather was career military in West Point. Being Charles K. Nelson III, there were expectations that I too might go to West Point and be a career military. That was not the case. You know, I grew up in the 70s. My father went to Vietnam for two years. My mother had to run the household with a husband in the forest with a gun in his hand and out fighting. So when it came to high school, I did apply to West Point and did a few of the the things to get there, but it really was not in my DNA. The good news is my father was very uh, understanding of that. And, you know, as my career in real estate grew, he was always pointed out that he was very happy that we didn't take the, the military uh, route. That Did was, you have any brothers and sisters that were had any influence from the military at all? Uh, no, I have a sister, but she was, you know, not a no inclination of going into the, the military. So did the Vietnam issues more or less kind of say, wait a minute, Dad, 
I'm not into this. You know, it, it was actually probably, I went to boarding school, all boys boarding school for three years of high school. And the thought of going to West Point for four years really <laughs> didn't appeal to me very much. The military itself, I've learned later in life, and I will use this as an example, that when people told me what to do and where to go, I spent all my time avoiding it. <laughs> when there are lines and they say you need to stay in between the lines, I would always go outside the lines. And the moment, and it was really after college, when the lines go away and people say, listen, it's up to you to figure out what you're going to do. You've already checked all the boxes. I found out that I was actually fairly lazy. And if I wanted to go someplace, I was going to take a straight line. And uh, I went there. And uh, so I stopped uh, spending all my time outside the lines and, and uh, just became very efficient in doing uh, what I wanted to do. So boarding school was a Episcopal high school, right? Correct. In Alexandria. Yeah. So for you, it was boarding because your, your family was traveling so much around Correct. the country, pretty much. So yeah. They didn't live in the D.C. area. They did not. The first year that I was at um, Episcopal, my, we lived in North Carolina. And then uh, my father actually moved up to D.C. to take another position up here right before retirement. So two of the years I was actually a, a resident of D.C. Interestingly enough, my father also went to Episcopal. So I was a uh -oh. legacy even there. So what, what was the decision tree to go to Babson? Why the business environment? You know, it was very scientific. I spent lots of time studying <laughs> What I kind of concluded is I didn't want to be a doctor, or actually I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a lawyer, and we had lots of lawyers in the family. I didn't want to go in the military, and there wasn't much left. And so I said, well, I might as well think about business. And my father piped up and says, well, there are two business schools up in Boston you should go look at. And it was Bentley and Babson. We went and looked at it, and Babson took me, and I went. <laughs> so not very scientific at all. It was really eliminating all the other possibilities. Is that where you caught the real estate bug? No. When I graduated from school, I thought, or Babson, I thought I was going to be in advertising. I thought really? I, I liked the creativity of advertising. And I came to D.C. where my parents lived, and I was, got my first job selling advertising for the Washington Business Journal. And so it's print advertising. I spent about six months in the advertising world, was not infatuated with it. I was selling advertising to a company called Spalding & Sly, which is a real estate company out of Boston. They apparently liked me and offered me a job to get in as a leasing agent, which I immediately took. And, you know, from there, so that was complete luck. And from so there... marketing um, was, your, was your thing at Babson? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Marketing. So sales and marketing. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Which meant it was really goofing off, but yes, <laughs> we did call it a marketing degree. <laughs> it was not high finance, that's for sure. But obviously numbers interest you. Did that come and, from that? Or you know, it really is, is. It's natural. While I could not sit still enough in school to really enjoy the, the number crunching, the moment you're doing it, for something that you really are interested in, and that was real estate. I found my number focus uh, increased dramatically. And in fact, you know, I was so good at it when I started working with uh, David Ross at Atlantic that I was the guy that would have to look at everything and proofread it before it ever went out the door. So did that acumen start at Spalding and Sly, you think? Or was uh, it, uh... it was actually, I was in Spalding and Sly for three years. I was in a leasing agent for their properties in Montgomery County. Spalding Sly was a, it was a great organization, but it was very Ivy League MBA directed. I was not an, I, an MBA or an Ivy Leaguer, and I just thought that my growth pattern might not be what I want it to be there. So I went and got uh, my real education from a company called Centennial Development. And I joined them in 1982. It was owned by an entrepreneur called Pete Scamardo. And I was the 15th person hired. We rose in 10 years. We rose up to 95 folks and then went back down to 15. And we were considered one of the most prolific developers in the 80s. But as David Ross and I used to laugh, we got 20 years experience in our 10 years there. 
we got to see it all. We got to see a startup. We got to see a full-fledged machine cranking on all cylinders. And then we watched, uh, got to see and participate in the workouts and the, and the world fell apart in the early 90s uh, recession. So was the, the experience, that 10-year experience at, at Centennial, was that kind of your foundation for, what, for being able to... Yeah, it, 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 it really was. So I started, and I, and I would like people to kind of take a page from this playbook because I think it's successful. I started leasing, and my first week there, we had a small company of 15 people, and they just had tons and tons of projects. So the first week there, I showed up, and they said, listen, we don't have anybody who can go to this architect meeting. Can you please go over there and pick all the, you know, the interior finishes for the lobby and everything else? And I'm like going, okay, you know, so I walked over to an architect's office all by myself at the age of 24 and selected everything and came back and, you know, said, what do you, what do you guys think? And Pete said, it looks good. And, and so what I realized is that I got into a company that I was going to get exposed to so many parts of the business. I started as a leasing agent, but after about three years, I decided to transfer to project management. It was taking a step down in salary and maybe prestige, but I wanted to understand the detailing of site plan and processing and the real hard construction. Was this your decision or was it? Uh... It, was, it was mine. Nobody wanted me to do it in the entire company. They all looked at me and thought I had two heads. And I said, listen, I have a lot more desire to learn this than I do just to keep doing the leasing game. Did you have a long range strategy in your thought? thought process there that you thought eventually you'd be an entrepreneur and learn a things? little bit I actually I mean it just came as a basic fundamental thirst for knowledge so I, I spent two and a half years three years doing project management and that was just brutal site plans civil engineer mm-hmm. drawings I worked on four different projects this is all pre-development stuff mostly mostly pre-development and development so I, I built a Woodburn Medical Park. I handled a track, uh, which 167 single-family homes that Pete Scamardo bought. I planned that and site planned it. It's so an interesting story in that we bought the, the site for $9 million from Mort Zuckerman. We had about $2 million in it in terms of soft costs. I planned it for 167 uh, single-family homes, one-acre lots. It was in the go-go days of 88, 89, mm-hmm. I guess it was 88. I brought in a contract from a builder for $22 million. I sat with Pete in his office and he looked at me and I said, you know, Pete, I said, you know, you only got $3 million cash in the deal. It's an $11 million profit. This is a good thing. And he goes, it'll be worth more later. And I said, in 1988. Yes. And I said, oh my God. And I did look at him and he and I had a great relationship. And I said, if you needed an appraisal, you shouldn't be using me. And he kind of laughed. The moral of the story is two years later, he gave it back to the bank and all that equity wiped out and had the bank chase, chasing him because it was a recourse note. And they eventually sold it for $6 million. So those types of things taught me so much about risk reward, believing your own press clippings, the whole aspect. And to be able to be with a company where we grew so dramatically from 15 people to 95, and then to go back down to 15, uh, we built 24 office buildings and we gave back 23. Oh my goodness. So it was a very quick climb up and a very quick climb down. How did you feel personally when this you know, this crash. I mean, what clouds on the horizon did you see individually? Or did just everybody around you say, oh, shit, we're in trouble here. So there's a couple of things that stick in my mind in Centennial. One, we, Pete decided to kind of, in the go-go years, kind of remove himself from day to day. And so we hired some senior people from institutional development companies. Jeff Arnold is somebody who put down and, and a couple other folks. And they immediately kind of took a very institutional approach to life. And we were doing a strategic plan. And Mm -hmm. I looked at the strategic plan in 1988, and it had us doubling every five years. 
And in reality, what happened after 1988 and 89 is that we fell apart and completely blew up in two years. And I was, it's those types of lessons. Was there a trigger point when you could see the, the, you know, the storm really hitting? Yeah, I, I could tell in the 88 time frame when we were giving 18 months of free rent and all of that. And, and Pete put together a cash flow model of all of our assets. And there were only two in the entire portfolio that had positive cash flow. And I kept going. Out of 24 assets? Yeah, I said, this is not good. There's another time. Pete was a recourse borrower, like everybody in those days. And he was working with one of the local banks. And instead of building one of the office buildings, there's a twin next to it. And the bank says, why don't you build both at the same time? It'll be cheaper. And I'm rolling my eyes going, eh, it might be cheaper, but it's certainly riskier. And then Pete had he and his wife signing on all the documents. And I remember at the age of 27 saying, Pete, you know, this is not a good idea to continue to have your wife signing these things. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point in time, when you get successful, you don't want to put everybody on the line. And he did it. And I just remember shaking my head going, that is like, not a smart move. And three years later, you know, he had more banks chasing the two of them than you would want to ever have in your lifetime. So you personally at that time, were you married at that point? I got married in 87. Okay. So you just so, were, you were a newlywed at that point. Yeah. With, with the crash. Yes. And did you have any children at that point? Or when uh, did we did not. So at the end of Centennial, we were workout specialists. There's only six of us. And we had a contract with Chase Manhattan Bank and Pete Scamardo or Centennial to continue the keep the assets alive and, and viable as they were working out their issues. That all came to an end. And David Ross, who's uh, my partner at Atlantic, and I looked at each other and we had two choices. One was go work for a bank, which is where a lot of the real estate guys went, or start a company. And David and I said, you know, I'm not really interested in working for a bank. And so we chose door number two. At the same time, I had my first child. At the same time, I moved, renovated a house and moved into it. So in 1992, I had my first child in March. We started the company in February. I had my first child in March and we moved in uh, September, October. Only can you do that in youth. So talk about the origins of Atlantic Realty um, and how how it all started and how many people you had and how quickly you grew the company. How that happened. So Atlantic uh, Realty was formed by David Ross and myself. And David and I both had worked at Centennial for 10 years and grew very close. And we knew each other very well. And we knew our strengths. And we knew our weaknesses. We split off from Centennial, formed the company, and bartered for office space with Chris Walker. We would trade leasing help for his free office space. And we kind of just went out and did a bunch of transactional work to put some money in the in the coffers. Was there anybody else at Centennial that you thought about bringing on with you or not? Um, there wasn't in the beginning. We did end up, after a year, starting to hire some people, which was great. And they were Centennial folks. And we were able to get a little bit of traction on investments. I think one of the things that um, is part of Nolson lore, we'll call it, is that my wife at the time had started working for Microsoft and they had just gone through their IPO and their IPO was starting to gain traction and the stock price was going up. So we went out and fought very hard to buy a property from New York Life. It's called Reston Business Center. And we kept looking for equity partners and we drove around and drove around and drove around and met with A, B, and C. But in 93, nobody was really. Still distressed time. Um, yeah, nobody was really buying into the investment, but we were, and we knew it was going to work. I had a friend at uh, Bank of America who I went and said, we want an acquisition loan, an improvement loan. And uh, he said, you got to be kidding me. I said, no, we want it. And you just need to tell me what I need to do to get it. I then, my wife had this Microsoft stock that was starting to do very well. And we had not been able to raise equity. So we used her stock as collateral for the loan. 
in a way that they made us print the certificates and hold them in their safety deposit by or hold them at the bank. So they really weren't making a real estate loan. They were making a loan against the mm-hmm. stock portfolio. And she was our, our largest investor, or she was the equity. We went and did our first deal. And she had to sign on the note. We put our stock up as collateral and we invested in it and knocked the cover off the wall. We were completely sold. It was an office condo and completely sold out in six months. So you knew the demand was there. We, we knew the thing was going to work. And that was the first and only time my wife has ever signed on a note or used stock as collateral. It is what we needed to do to, to get it going. And then uh, we went on a, a, a great program of buying distressed real estate with my wife as the lead investor for the next four years. And we bought a lot of uh, bank-owned assets using our marketing skills and to value add and bring tenants into the building and then pretty much finance the equity out. It was so you didn't have to raise third-party equity from any, any other source? We right? did not. So the other strategy, because what we were doing is we were churning the, the money so fast that my wife could literally use the same X amount of money and just keep investing and keep investing and investing because we would return it in a year. And so then we just take the same money and then buy something else. The other thing that David and I did that other people did not was that we borrowed from local banks on a recourse basis which meant we didn't have to give up part of the deal to capitalize it. And, and that ended up being the smart move because it allowed us to keep 100 cents on the dollar on terms of the, the project. You know, we really looked at ourselves and said, you know, we're buying this at, at 40 cents on the dollar. What is the probability after our cash is in there at 10 cents that it's going to go down to 30 cents on the dollar and we're going to give it back? And we mm-hmm. said... There's really not much of a the probability of doing that. So while everybody else was very afraid of recourse and personal loans and recourse financing, we were not, and we were able to kind of leverage ourselves in the early 90s with a very active portfolio. We bought 50 or 60 buildings in the 90s, so we became very Was um, it only in the active. office sector, mostly? or you did uh, some Pretty things? much. We did some uh, shopping centers, uh, Hunter's Woods in Reston. Jeez, I can't remember. The what attracted it to retail as opposed to just office? You know, it, it was grocery anchored and they just right. needed value add. And once you've solved some of the leasing problems, uh, you can do very well. Was your philosophy at Atlantic to keep everything in house or did you, you know, diversify services like property management, leasing and all that? So we use the, the 80s model of development where we kept it all in house. So yeah. we had. We finally created a property management company to take care of the, the assets. We have a leasing person. We had construction people. development. We also brought on a, another partner, Stan Bard, who was a, a transactional attorney at Shaw Pittman. And what he brought to the table was that Dave and I were very, very good at bringing deals in and making deals. And he was you know, very instrumental in processing the technical aspect of the transactions so that we could do lots in a short period of time and just go very fast with it. Did he handle the financing for you as well? Yes and no. He handled the technical aspect of financing. I was kind of the, the money guy or I was the one who was going to the banks and dealing with them. How did that affect your business philosophy? The, the whole, I mean, you obviously went through the up cycle, the down cycle, and then you had a belief, obviously, to start your own company that you're on your way back up. When did you have a feeling that maybe we're going to have some issues here again? And based on what your experience was the prior you know, 10 year period, or did you have that feeling? A little bit. I mean, in like the, the tech bubble? Yeah, potentially that and some of the other bumps, you know, 9 11 and some of the things that happened. We really were able to take advantage of the 90s and develop, you know, a good, strong portfolio of cheap buildings that cash flowed and gave us a base. And you were diversified. And we were diversified. And then we went and built Plaza America and we did a lot of new construction, but they're all pre-leased office. So one of the things was that we did not build office unless we pre-leased it. That was a, that rule. Was a, that was a rule of thumb that came out of the 80s. The other is 
don't put your wife on the note. (laughs) (laughs) And that was a rule in the 80s. And then, you know, be completely honest on the risk. And if you can really look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, this is the risk profile and be comfortable with it, you should be doing that as opposed to reading press clippings and making you feel like everything. So did you have kind of an inner circle that each looked at each other and said, okay, here's the situation. Here are the good things. Here are the bad things. How do you make those decisions? I mean, sure. Is you and David? Or and, and, well, no, it was, it was David and Stan and myself. And I, I, I will okay. tell you, we're all three the same age. We all three grew up at Centennial. Stan was an outside attorney, but we had 10 years of practice making decisions on somebody else's money. And then when we got to our putting in our own money, we really, I think, could look at almost any real estate problem and solve it between the three of us. We had a very, very well-oiled approach to looking at different aspects to real estate, talking about pluses and minuses from legal standpoint, from market standpoint, from financing standpoint. We solved a lot of problems. So my partnership at Atlantic, you know, really was very, very strong. We never had problems making decisions. We never ended up voting. It was three of us. And if all three of us didn't think it was a good idea, we wouldn't do it. And uh, so it was never a two-on-one situation. Did you ever have problem deals at the bank? I mean, situations you maybe got a little bit ahead of yourself and said, maybe not this time. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think so. I mean, really? we, yeah, That's I don't good. think we had any. We did that. We did a couple of partnership deals with some outsiders that mm-hmm. were interesting. And, and, I, and I did a ULI talk on one of them is when we bought Tycon Courthouse which is a 440,000 square foot office building in Tyson's. We bought it with Walton Street Capital. Is that the, the that toilet bowl? Yeah. IUD building, they call yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a big project and, and um, we were going to be a small player in a big project, but you know we had property management expertise. So we bought it and I guess, I want to say 99 or 2000, maybe it was 2000. The entire world changed in 2001. So... We missed every one of our assumptions by at least 40%. We missed our rental assumptions. We missed our TI assumptions. We missed our, the companies who are going to be viable or not viable. But we also missed our debt assumptions and our cap rate assumptions. And so while we got less rent and spent more money to get the less rent, our debt service went almost to zero our cap rate dropped 200 basis points on the exit. And we ended up leasing it up to the FBI, getting it stabilized and selling it and made money. So you were lucky. Yes. And that, (laughs) and that, that, that is, that is a very important aspect of all of real estate. And I think anybody that you talk to who knows me would say, Charlie's got a horseshoe somewhere. (laughs) Or a rabbit's foot or whatever, but uh, you got to be lucky. I'd rather be lucky than smart is what I always say. You invested in pain in your early part of your career, which was good. Yes. Because you learned the hard way on what not what to do, what not to do. And you obviously learned from Pete Scamardo some lessons that you probably will never forget. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. There's no <laughs> doubt that the largest influence on my business strategy and my assessment of risk was having spent 10 years working with Pete Scamardo. Without a doubt, I saw the good and the bad and the ugly. And, you know, it helps you make those decisions. What do you want to do when you're at the, you know, when you're in the driver's seat, how are you going to respond? Let's summarize those real quick. From him, what, did, what good things did you learn from him? Just out of uh, he, he was a prolific deal maker. He loved the business. He was a great personality. So he had all this energy and he was very interesting in his deal-making approach, but he was, he was extremely aggressive, but in a good way in mm-hmm. terms of, of doing that. He was a very likable guy. He also paid attention, and actually too much attention, to detail. And sometimes you know, he would take a project meeting and take it five hours, start arguing about you know, FedEx bills and things. And you know, so this architectural detail or financial detail? Project or construction, you know, just your project meeting, okay. the buildings under construction right. and costs and that right. type of thing, mm-hmm. change orders. So that was 
the the bad side, he would definitely over negotiate. <laughs> he he definitely uh, did not have a good antenna for risk. I've always been amazed at the age of twenty seven. I had a better antenna at risk than he did. So your gut told you he was doing some yes. tough things. Yeah. And, you know, and the ugly, now it really wasn't. I mean, everybody in, the, in that uh, crash, which I call the 100-year flood, which took out all the developers, really put in some very, very, very hard spots. You know, when you're 20,000 leagues under the sea and every one of your banks is calling their note all at the same time, it's a very hard position. And then we can dial forward to 2008 and the banks responded exactly the opposite. They didn't call their notes. They extended their notes. Right. They, they cut deals and they did everything exactly the opposite because they saw, you know, with the, uh, the putting together the RTC, I mean, for banks to own all this real estate was just foolhardy. We went through a recession in 2008 that has a, had a lot of stress in it, but uh, candidly, it, it, it allowed us to work through it because the financial industry gave us the, the flexibility to do that. So let's dial back a little bit to your transition from Atlantic Realty into the Washington property and the evolution of Washington property. It was 2003, 2004. I was doing kind of some soul searching with David and Stan, and we had an extremely well-run machine for 14 years, 13 years, and we made decisions and didn't have any problems. But I was at a point in my career where I had four kids, and I wanted to start thinking generationally in terms of operating companies and generationally in terms of assets. And it was really hard to introduce the control mechanisms to give a third owner those control mechanisms to create that. And it was candidly really unfair for me to insert that into that partnership. So we worked it out where I could remove myself from Atlantic and and start Washington Property Company on my own. I was able to take about a third of the assets that we had under management at, uh, at Atlantic and bring them over to my shop so that I could start a management company and have a revenue stream. Did yeah. you bring personnel with you? I did. I would like to think that they brought the personnel that wanted to work with me, but when I found out that every one of them lived in Maryland and my office was in Maryland, <laughs> I think the, the reason they came was that they didn't want to drive over the bridge. But I, I did bring some personnel over. And, and it worked out okay. I mean, we didn't have, you know, as divorces go, it was a five. You know, it wasn't, wasn't totally seamless, but it wasn't we, no litigation or anything like that. It was interesting because I started out myself and then I brought my secretary and then, you know, I had to get some bookkeeping folks and I hired that out. And then when I worked through bringing over some of the management, uh, the buildings and the management contracts, I hired Derek Hendon, um, mm-hmm. who was the, the head of management over there. And we kind of built the management company and collecting rents and paying bills and that right. type of thing while I went out for investments. So these assets that you moved over, deals that you'd already acquired yes. you know, yeah. and operated. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't go out and buy assets to, just to build your revenue stream right up front. Well, uh, yeah, I had I had an existing revenue stream from yep. management, but then I did go out and buy immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and I bought a, a fair number of suburban office buildings in 2006, 2007, which I had a rough go of it in 2008. What was your philosophy then? I mean, just more of the same from Atlantic or was there a different thought process? As far a as little as bit different thought process in that I transactionally and value add, you know, we would do the same thing, but from a development standpoint, I wanted to branch into uh, multifamily. So I went out as soon as I started Washington Property Company and started looking at sites that were apartment sites. I was able to uh, tie down a site. Was that market reasons or was that just personal? It was, it was uh, product diversification. And I looked at the, the big development families, the Petersons, the Learners, you know, and I said, what kind of differentiates them from other folks. And it was really product diversification that when retail was going strong, Milt Peterson was building big box. When 
office was strong, he was doing office. When multifamily was going strong, he's doing multifamily and doing single family homes. And and same with the learners. You know, they build office, they build multifamily, they've got big retail. And I just said, they do it and they do it well. <laughs> Might as well give it a try. We did, we got fortunate in that we tied up some just terrific sites, all of them metro, all of them uh, CBD oriented. And the multifamily kind of wave started happening in 2010. And that's when we started our first 300 uh, unit apartment building downtown Silver Spring. So the financial situation coming in, starting with Washington Property Company, you had enough cash flow to, to live and to do all that. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and actually even more than that, we'd done very well. So I had a lot of capital and I, I set aside about $40 million to go out and invest with. That was kind of my platform. That's a good start. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, it, we'd done very well. Uh, my wife had done very well, both in Microsoft, but also in, in real estate. And so things had, had gone, you know, very, very well. And I had, you know, I had a company that could carry itself and pay salaries. And, and then I had an investment yeah. pool in which to go out and, and was, do it. You know, stepping back to the start, was there a, a certain issue that came up among you and your partners other than your personal desire to build wealth for your family and stuff? Was there anything that came up that there was no cataclysmic event or nothing that really... No, not really. We, we talked about it for a year and a half. Okay, um, so there was an evolutionary. An evolutionary. I, I took the summer off in 2004 and took my family on an RV trip for um, seven weeks. And we traveled 10,000 miles. And that was kind of my... Wow. I'm going to take a little bit of a break nice. and see if I still feel the same way when I get back. And, and I came back you know, in the fall of 2004 and said, yeah, I just don't think I'm going to be able to change my thought process on this. And so we kind of started in 2005. I think I left maybe May or June of 2005. Your thought process is evolutionary throughout. So you started out with the rise and fall and then the startup and then, well, we've reached a certain point. Now it's time to kind of transition to another level. Right. So as you're now, what, how many, 12, 14 years into Washington Property Company? Yeah, I think it's 14. 14. Yeah. yeah. What's, the, what's kind of the next in your, in your mind? What's, so what's the next? I'm, I'm, a, I am a, I'm a big planner. I think one of the, the criticisms that would be, Charlie, you're trying to solve problems 10 years downstream today. And so, you know, my big challenge going forward is to get a family office structure that allows my kids to come in and participate family office, whether it's in real estate or some other investment and look to do the gen one to gen two transfer. I was uh, lucky enough to have put the real estate into dynasty trusts in 2002, which was a long time ago. So we've been operating all in all the real estates and dynasty trusts. So this company stock is in the dynasty trust. It's not my name because all of these inherited passing along of wealth issues. When you be- say dynasty trust, is that a foundation or is it a different? It's it, no, it's it's a trust that is is uh, the beneficiaries are my kids and their kids. Okay. So it's a generation skipping trust. So now we're we're taking that backbone, if you will, and creating a much more management-related infrastructure that has a governing board with outside people to help give input to the next generation and a family council that gives the family the ability and place to chat and talk about things. So that's kind of the new thing. I mean, right now, from a, from a development standpoint, we've got, I don't know, about $500 million worth of development in the pipeline which is a lot for this organization, you know, I think that's, you know, we're going to go fulfill that before we hunt for too much more. We've got, you know, a lot of things to look at from an acquisition standpoint. We're going to go raise some outside money for that. But uh, the acquisition value add, you know, right now is kind of a tough, tough platform. So your children, uh, 
they all interested in real estate? And what, what's, the, what's the thought process there? Yeah, you know, I mean, we've got two who have gone to Wisconsin, graduating from the Grass Camp School of Real Estate. So it's number one or number two in the country. I've got two who have not chosen that as a career path. The cool thing about a family office is that you don't have to be in the operating company to be associated with real estate decisions and to be involved. I think I've got two that want to be directly involved in the operation. I've got two that don't, but everybody will be somewhat involved. I've put together a rule where none of the kids could come in and work for me until they've worked either five or seven years in the real estate industry before coming here. And it's twofold. I want to see if they like it because I have no interest in any of my children working for me if they don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) The business that is. The other is is to, you know, get information and, and to get what I achieved at Centennial so that when they show up here, they have a different perspective. They're they're gonna bring something to the table. I don't want to have people in my employment that just mimic. How are you encouraging? I mean, are you, you know, here was my career path. You can go a lot of different ways. What advice do you give your children since they're thinking about the business? So I've got two things of advice, and that is don't sweat it that much because no matter what you do, you can always change it in the future. And you know, I started off selling advertising. And I was a leasing guy. And then I went to development. And my son right now is an analyst at Northmark. So he's learning the the financial game. And that's a great entry spot. And then I would say, you know, you might, once you feel like you got that down, go look at, you know, maybe working for a developer or something to that effect. So that's kind of the advice is that there is no absolute way to do it. And you just need to be involved and you need to be a sponge and you need to learn. And then you need to kind of figure out what floats your boat, what gets you excited so that, you know, when you're out there, it doesn't seem like work. It's just fun. So, Charlie, let's let's kind of transition a little bit to your philanthropic interests. Your children, obviously, is the number one philanthropic interest you right. have, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm getting beyond them now. I'm like going, okay, <laughs> I've done enough for you guys. <laughs> Probably the most important thing is that we're not put on this planet just to serve ourselves, and we need to serve other people. And it's extremely important, I think, for entrepreneurial and family businesses that have roots in the community to give back and give back substantially give back both financially, but, and also give back in your energy and your time and your thought. And so I think it's extremely important. We do all sorts of things. I've been involved with Children's Hospital for 25 years, but not just sitting on a board. We, we organized the Children's Run, 5K Run in the uh, 90s and had it out at Plaza America and very successful. And then uh, when I split off Informed Washington Property Company, I didn't have that venue available, so we went to a Monte Carlo night. I don't know if you remember, but we had great success at and raised two and a half million dollars over five years. So it's it's a combination of writing checks, but also giving of yourself and, and trying to help them. Is this something them. your father instilled with you? Not really. You know, my, my father's a government worker, you right. know, and, and you know, we didn't even own the house that we lived in. Right. I mean, you're on base. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a different, different setup. My father was a very generous man, but he was not able to, oh, I understand. you know, do what we've been able to do. To give back. I mean, he was a yes. military guy. So yeah. Obviously gave back. Yeah. So, I mean, his old, you know, and I got to tell you, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the military personality is that's all they do is give back. They're giving to their country. Always. And I do look around and there's. I just wish some civilians would have exposure to the military mentality because it would be very fruitful and helpful. Did your children have any interest in the military at all? You know, not really. Not at all. Yeah. I'm not sure why, but uh, yeah. And they knew their family history of that. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They knew their grandfather. Yeah. yeah. My wife does think it it explains some of my uh, risk-taking capabilities because... When you think about it, I mean, my father was in infantry. He was in the jungle taking shots and getting people shooting at him. And uh, it takes a certain person to deal with all that. Absolutely. So 
it's it's pretty interesting. So philanthropically, we have a foundation, which is kind of the financial side, but we also give of our time to uh, inner city kids for scholarships at New Community Foundation. We have given a lot of time and energy to Shepherd's Table, which is serving the homeless. We've given to all of our educational institutions. Most recently, we endowed a chair at uh, the Babson College uh, Institute of Family Entrepreneurship. I'm involved in AU. Mm-hmm. ULI. And ULI. And, you know, so we're giving back is, is a big, big piece of things. So do you encourage everyone that works for you to, to do that same thing? Is that a philosophical thing? That you yeah. Do oh, no, absolutely. And we're going to do more of it, not less. I mean, because what happened is everybody would do it because I would take charge. You know, I would go do the Monte Carlo night and people would be on committee and I would right. need people for this and that. Right. I'm now really hoping that, you know, I can pass a baton and say, you guys now need to be in charge. You need to give your time and energy in addition to financial implications that we can create. So, Charlie, looking back at your career a little bit, ask you to test your memory a little bit on stories of things that cataclysmic events, but either positive or negative in your career that might be interesting for people to know about? You know, it's funny. I mean, I guess I have a few stories. I think one of the interesting things, I was working for Centennial. We had a bead on a tenant who wanted uh, a build-a-suit 210,000 feet. And I'm of somebody who does not like people to say no to me or take no as an answer. I kept calling their broker saying, I've, we've got something for you. We should take a look at it. we got a story to tell you. And the guy said, no, we've kind of made up our mind. We're going to go over here. And I said, well, you know, that's really, you know, I think we have something better, you know, whatever. And I said, listen, you know, I know you're in Boston. I'm going to fly up and I'm going to spend a half an hour with you while you're eating lunch. And then I'm going to leave. The broker who was representing us missed the plane. And I guess I was like 28 years old and I flew up to Boston and grabbed this guy at lunch. He ate soup at his desk and I went through my pitch and, you know, six months later, they signed a lease with us and it was a pre-lease for 210,000 feet, which was the biggest deal Centennial had ever done. It all was by me just not taking no for an answer, but being nice about it and saying, listen, I will fly up. I'll take my time to come to visit you, to tell you our story. And it sunk in. So that was a success. Is this a gut feeling that you had that you knew you had the better deal, the better site, the better location? Or was it just determination? I'm going to get this. It's just kind of brute determination. What was interesting is I went up to pitch him on a building that we had at Fair Oaks that hadn't been built. And he was signing a lease in Reston. And, but he was signing it for a couple of reasons. And we just sat down and said, well, if he wants to be there, why doesn't he want to be right here? And it was owned by Reston Land. And so we all looked around and said, well, let's go talk to Reston Land, see if they'll sell us the, the dirt. And the moment we had a good conversation with Reston Land about buying the dirt, we sat down and saying, I know that you think you want to go here, but why don't you want to go here? And uh, it was next to a very important client. And they said, yeah, it makes sense for us to go there. So that's your leasing agent coming out to some extent. Yes. And I would say the leasing agent, along with the development, was really kind of my specialty where I could blend the market and the market information with the technical aspect. And that's kind of why I've been able to flourish in terms of deals and working through stuff because it combines both. Kind of a, a weird story is in our very first project, it was an office condo, and but it was rented and, and it was built to be an office condo. It ended up being rental. It got taken back. We we're going to buy it cheap and then go sell it. So we, Atlantic Realty. Yes. And we were going to go buy this thing for $50 a foot and sell it for $80 a foot. This is what, 1993? 93. Yes. Okay. We end up buying it and there's this one unit owner who we could never find and never talk to and never do anything. And uh, he would show up on a bike with cash and pay his rent. We're like going, wow, I wonder what's going on there. And so finally, we just got one of the keys 
and knocked and we didn't hear him. And so we went in and the guy was living in the office space. Oh my goodness. And he was a schizophrenic and a hoarder. And he had been taping CIA, you know, he was taping some things. And anyway, the entire suite, I think it was 1,500 feet, was full of uh, tapes and tape boxes with a TV in the middle. So that was really weird. And so we're like going, we have to sell this thing, you know, and and how are we going to do that? And so we finally kept, you know, sending him letters saying, you know, you need to vacate, you need to vacate. Unfortunately, and it was very strange, but he ended up having a heart attack in his space. And we kept knocking and knocking. And finally, we, we went in and found out that he had uh, passed away. But we had no, no next to kin. We didn't know, you know what to do and how to do it. And then finally, his brother, uh, who hadn't talked to him in 20-some years, showed up and cleaned it all out. But that was oh. a very strange... <laughs> <laughs> Very strange dealings, you know. (laughs) You know, we have so many stories, but I I can't, you know, couldn't go through all and take take all day. What was some of the more disappointing things? And not just sort of real estate, but personnel or partnership or anything that that you learned a lesson from that you wouldn't do again or life experience type of thing. Yeah, we've been pretty fortunate. I'm a total optimist. So everything happens for a reason. So if something really disappointing happens, it's because it's going to make room for something positive. And so I haven't really looked at the world as, oh, my God. That's where your luck comes from. Sure. <laughs> I will tell you that I, we had a uh, failed zoning attempt at Prosperity Medical uh, when I was at Atlantic. And we went all the way to the Board of Supervisors and they voted against us. How long a process was that? It took us about a year and lots of community meetings and the community got really upside down in terms of their, what they wanted. And, but we had by right. My project manager said, I'll never forget. He says, you walked out of that hearing. And the first thing you said is, let's get the by right thing filed tomorrow. And we're just going to move forward. You did not think one second more about what had just happened. We built Prosperity Medical Campus, which is a highly successful medical campus, and did very well with it. And we just moved on. I don't have a lot of, and I bought some assets in 2006 and 2007 that are still problems today. I would say uh, my regret probably would, I would have sold some of the suburban office assets and held on to some of the, the medical assets. And maybe some of the retail assets. You told me that Prince George's County was a difficult experience. For you. Yes and no. I mean, when we first bought it, it was a very positive experience. And we mm-hmm. bought Golden Triangle with nine acres of land and we sold three acres to a hotel. Then we built two pre-leased office buildings. Most of Maryland is kind of slow commercially. And, and now those assets really don't perform to where we would have ever expected them. Again, it, I lost a big tenant in, in Greenbelt. We had Zudo move out. And that was a very disappointing situation. But we've now released it. and We've survived. So they're not too many. You were also taking interest in politics too, Charlie. Talk to me a little bit about that evolution. And was that primarily from a real estate you know, ownership standpoint? Or was there another? Yeah, I, I would say my political uh, involvement is, is strictly locationally, and it's it's Montgomery County. It's focused primarily that we have a huge investment in Montgomery County, and sure that we help out the the political landscape as much as possible to keep it healthy. You know, in my partnership in Atlantic, David was really the politician. I was the finance, and, and that was what Northern Virginia mostly. Yeah, yeah, and so politics does not come naturally to me, but I have gotten very involved putting together some political action committees and things of that nature. And it, a lot of it has to do with, I just don't think we're doing things as well as they, that could be done in Montgomery County. Does that affect your investing in Montgomery County in the future? Or does uh, do these... It will. It yes. will. Right now, I have a huge investment in Montgomery County. And so strategically... Without regard to Montgomery County's politics, we've made a decision that we need to 
spend more time in Virginia and more time in the district. I'm what my name is Washington Property Company, and we don't own any property in Washington. So we will be doing that really regardless. We just bought 700 unit uh, parcel in Tyson's, which we think is a uh, is a good spot to be, and we will be focusing on those two other jurisdictions a little bit more. You see yourself working for what? Another 10, 15 years? Or? We'll see. <laughs> it, it, this business doesn't lend itself to totally retiring. So when I look at my friends like Sonny Small and his dad and Josh Bernstein sure. and his dad, I mean, these guys you know, are still coming to the office. Lerner, right. Milt Peterson. Right. I mean, these guys, you know, you don't really retire. retire. Ali Carr. Ali mm-hmm. Carr. But I would like to get my kids involved and, and start getting them to be involved in, into day-to-day and, and let me, you know, kind of go goof off a little bit. So if you were in front of a class of, let's say, graduate students today, what lessons would you kind of leave based on your experience, what you've learned um, well, in your career? What, what I would I'd love to promote to young people is that you can do it. And, and when I say that, take the entrepreneurial approach to real estate. I'm a big advocate of Entre, you know, family enterprise and family entrepreneurs, as opposed to institutional direction in, in real estate. And I just got back from a, a hundredth anniversary of Babson College, which is the school for entrepreneurship. And I would say the most underlying trait that people would say you should possess to be an entrepreneur is just stick to it. Don't let people say you can't do it. Go stick to it. And every decision is going to change and every situation is going to change and just grasp change as a positive and keep making better decisions as you move along. Don't be afraid. When I started Atlantic, it was right in the middle of the darkest real estate recession of all time. And I had so many people look at me and say, why are you doing that? You know, and I just looked at him and said, because the alternative isn't all that attractive to me. And I don't possess any great magical wand, but it's been fun and we've had great success here. So it's, it's even doubly fun when you're winning. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Charlie, because I look at other people that have come out of the early 90s as being, I would say that's the greatest wealth creation time frame from early 90s to the 2000, perhaps, in the history right. of real estate yeah. in the United States. Read industry, all those things happened. And the decisions you made earlier than a lot of people did, because some people waited till the mid-90s to, yeah, to take to that put their of, toe in. I agree with that. that type of risk. It's impressive that you were able to do that. But I think that it sounds like the circumstances came together well for you with David, you had a partner that the two of you had the same mindset to go after it. We were very symbiotic in that, and we had known each other for 10 years, so we already knew how we thought. And same with Stan, and Stan was our transactional attorney for 10 years. So we had three people sitting at the table who knew each other very well, all very smart. And as I said, I don't think anybody could attack a real estate problem better than the three of us. Well, it's an interesting model for People going forward as we're now thinking about maybe that we're coming into a recession after a what 10 11 years of right prosperity what's next you know yeah. looking over the horizon how do you think about what do you think about as you're going forward when you yeah and, and recessions uh, create opportunities and they create imbalance in the market what's interesting is that the real estate business is not really over leveraged right now. I would say for the first time in my 40 years, we are as conservatively leveraged as I've ever seen. And so even a recession is not going to create quite the distress opportunities that other recessions. So consequently, you're developing more, you're taking more risk. Right. And you feel confident in that. Primarily, I think, because other people are more cautious going into this and you're saying, hey, you know, why not take an opportunity when it's here as long as you definitely, you know, if you're contrarian, I'm a little bit of a contrarian. You kind of go when everybody's not going. Right. Those have tended to be in my 40 year career, the better decisions. When you're going 
with the pack and everybody's doing the same thing, I find the returns on those uh, investment decisions pretty marginal. I've always found that when you make decisions that weren't with the pack, and you saw some uh, inefficiencies in the market and took advantage of it, that that's where you get the data. Well, it's interesting. You and I worked on a project up on Rockville, right? Where you saw your largest tenant leave and you had to make a decision about what you were going to do with that asset. And in our first meeting, I was like, wow, this is impressive that you're going to take this location. And again, I think that's the marketing aspect right. of your background, seeing that site to be able, and maybe we should give a little backstory on what that is. but. This is a, what was it, about 100,000 square foot building? No, maybe 70,000. 70,000 70, square foot office yeah. building, three, three or four stories on I-270 on research, on research Place, I think it is, research frontage right on I-270. And when I first met with Charlie, I was trying to help him work out a, uh, <laughs> a, loan. Loan, a loan that was, you know, the, the property's value was maybe 60% of the loan amount. So we were able to figure out a, a, a solution to acquire the note. And then in the back of Charlie's mind, or even the front of his mind at the time, he decided that he was going to build convert this to self-storage, which I thought was a brilliant play because of the location and the opportunity. It was really the only self-storage facility on that side of 270, which was a more dense office community. And uh, it's turned out. Maybe not yeah, tell the story on how it's... How well, I mean, one is one of the great, I think, adaptive reuses of an office building that I can remember or I've seen. It really was, we had an old zoning overlay on our property that was from the 60s. And that really created that opportunity because it allowed self-storage while it didn't allow self-storage for anybody else. And it was fortunate that we were able to, when we were thinking about what we want to do with the asset figure out that the zoning gave us a, a loophole in which we could go implement a different uh, approach. And the asset has turned out to be, you know, just a great asset. And, and candidly, for the town of Rockville, who closed the loophole, I think they're doing it foolishly because self-storage assets are immensely energy efficient immensely profitable in terms of, of cash flow and value, generate hardly any traffic, and generate really no, no use of, of uh, government facility and infrastructure. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's like the perfect thing. It pays taxes without using anything. But they, they've got this misperception that uh, self-storage is a place where hoodlums hang out. And they, they don't want them. And I'm like going, guys, you guys got it backwards. This is like the cleanest, most efficient use and tax paying use that you could possibly put there. It's always a funny world. <laughs> one, other, one other story that I, that I recall you talking about is acquiring land at the right time, particularly residential land. So tell the story about the property in, I think it was in Loudoun County. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just kind of one of these lucky things where I guess it was in, was it called Washington Center, George Washington Center? That's GW, GW yeah, University. GW yeah. University Center. And they had a very awkward commercially zoned piece of property at what ended up being a dead end road. And Wells Fargo had taken back the, the land. What year was this? 2007, 8? I think I bought it in 2009. So it was 13 acres, kind of up on a hill, completely miszoned. It was interesting in that everybody in Loudoun thought uh, Loudoun was getting away from residential, wanted to go to commercial. This was commercial piece. And so everybody said, nobody is going to get this rezoned to residential. But we bought it at such a cheap price. And the price kept coming down and down and down. And finally, I think we picked up 13 acres. For this seven, was a land bank? $750,000. It was cheap enough that, you know, I just said, fine, we'll deal with it 30 years from today. I mean, I, I don't know. But my first meeting with the superintendent, I said, you know, this thing's now a dead end road. It's miszoned. It really would make a nice townhouse community. And you've got a ballpark and maybe we can help out with that. And she says, you know, Loudoun County needs more townhouses. <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair. 
I said, good, because that's what we'd like to do. And we ended up rezoning the, the parcel, 13 acres to 95 townhouses, and ended up selling it to, uh, I think it's NVR for you know 12 or $13 million, which was a pretty big profit in two years for a piece of land that not many people had an interest in, in owning. So as, a, as far as a transaction with a multiple, was that perhaps one of the best deals you've ever done from a multiple standpoint? From a multiple standpoint, sure. We had such little cash in it. There have been other instances where we've done extremely well. And it all boils down to the story of Pete Scamardo with his 167 acres, who turned down a $22 million offer with an $11 million cost. So an $11 million profit to, and a year and a half later, turn it over to the bank at a complete loss. And I said, you know, sometimes you got to take it and make it and put it in your pocket. And it's been well worth having gone through that experience because uh, you can't hold on to some of these things too long. So, Charlie, thanks for your time. Is there Absolutely. anything else before we let go that you want to share with uh, the audience at all as far as your No, I don't think so. I really appreciate kind of being included in this. And hopefully somebody has the time to listen to it. <laughs> I think... Many people listen and listen well. So thank you very much, Charlie, for your time and energy today. Great. Thanks, John. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good day. 